terms of, of where we are in Luke's gospel account, many of you have been along for this ride, you know, um, but just to catch us all up to, to speed, Jesus has just entered the city of Jericho, one of three non-coastal tax collecting epicenters where we saw an example of God making the impossible possible and bringing salvation to the home of the, the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel, a man by the name of Zacchaeus, a thieving tax collector who came face to face with the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, finding in Jesus what he had sought in vain through the amassing of wealth. A story of penitent faith, a story of uh, believing repentance, repentance and faith being two sides of the, the very same coin, the story of Zacchaeus is the story of a camel passing through the eye of a needle, reminding us that, that what's impossible with man is absolutely possible with God. It's in the wake of, of that story and the beautiful dialogue between Jesus and Zacchaeus that we're told, picking up the story in verse 11 of chapter 19, that as they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. At this point in the story, we're, we're a little less than 20 miles from the city of Jerusalem, that, the famous triumphal entry just on the other side of this morning's passage. And with Jesus' arrival, the heightened expectations of a political Messiah, one who would overthrow Roman tyranny and give Israel her political independence. And so Jesus tells a story, one of the many parables that we encounter throughout the book of Luke. There are more to come. A parable being a story with a deeper meaning, a story that communicates a deeper reality or a, a hidden truth melting the hearts of those with ears to hear and eyes to see while hardening the hearts of others in divine judgment. In this case, a parable that emphasizes the future inbreaking of the kingdom in response to the temptation on the part of Jesus' disciples to look for its full realization in the present. A story revealing that God's kingdom won't be seen in its consummate expression until Jesus returns, starting out small and gradually spreading until that great day. Like a mustard bush, like leaven. Upon first glance, it, it's not too difficult to see the resemblances uh, between this morning's parable and the parable of, of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. And yet, there are enough differences between the two that, that many scholars believe that, that Jesus made more than one use of the same teaching. We, we saw that back with the Sermon on the Plain. Some believe that that's synonymous with the Sermon on the Mount. Others believe that those are two different moments with Jesus taking some of the same content and bringing it to bear for different audiences modifying the details based on the unique situation. Verse 12 tells us, and he said, therefore, and here's where the parable begins. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. All right, from, from this point on in his writing, Luke places greater emphasis on Jesus's kingship. We're gonna see that in the final days leading up to his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus here telling the story of a, of a nobleman who went off to a faraway land to receive for himself a kingdom. For, for those in Jesus' day, the, the story of Archelaus would have readily come to mind. The, the son of Herod the Great, Archelaus was set to take the throne of Judea in Jesus' day. And, and yet, there was only one, the great emperor Caesar, who had the power and authority to crown Archelaus as king. And so upon the death of his father, Archelaus traveled to Rome. We know this through 
historians in Jesus' day in order to receive his proper coronation. And yet roughly 50 Jewish leaders had to uh, come from Jerusalem to Rome to testify against the fitness of Archelaus to rule as king. Such testimony including Archelaus's slaughtering of roughly 3,000 worshipers in the wake of a disturbance at the Jerusalem temple on, at Passover. It was a horrific moment. Lots of death. In addition, the 50 who came to, to Rome to testify against Archelaus, they were joined by thousands of Jews who were living in Rome at the time so that Caesar ultimately gave Archelaus the authority to govern and yet, at the same time, he withheld from him the formal title of king of Judea. Coming back to the parable, Jesus is, of course, the nobleman in the story who must go away for a time before returning to usher in his kingdom in its full expression. A story that surely would have resonated with many in the wake of the story of Archelaus' journey to Rome and back, and yet... And I love this about the scriptures. You just see this over and over and over again, the contrast. And yet, Jesus sets himself apart in that, unlike Archelaus, he's worthy of the title. Not just of king, but king of kings. He goes on the story in verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he, this nobleman, gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Many scholars believe the number 10, a round number, is Jesus' way of communicating that this parable is for not just the 12, but for all of Jesus' disciples. A parable having to do with kingdom stewardship between the time of Jesus' post-resurrection ascension and his return uh, to set all things right, his second coming. Expressed in the, the parable by the nobleman's giving of the 10 minas, one to each of his servants. You have permission to pronounce it a mina in your community group. That's going to be really uncomfortable because we've all been calling it a mina for all of our lives, okay? But just know, um, when you get into those living rooms, it's, it's okay. A mina being the equivalent of about three months' wages so that we're not talking about uh, some sort of lavish opportunity to steward, but enough with which to exercise kingdom stewardship at the same time. And therefore, it, it has purpose for all of us. We've all been giving, given something. We've all been given the gospel. Here's where uh, I think a noting of the distinction between the two parables, the one in this morning's passage and the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 can be, can be helpful. With the parable of the talents, each servant, we're told, received a different amount of money depending on his abilities. The parable of the talents in Matthew's gospel account teaching us that we all have different skills. We all have different talents. We all have different trades and resources with which to serve the Lord. I don't think we have to be convinced of that. In contrast, each of the servants in this morning's parable receives the same amount of money. One mina per servant. This particular parable being more about faithfulness than giftedness, which we're told in verse 17. That as I just mentioned, we've all been entrusted with the deposit of the one and same gospel, having the same responsibility to steward that good deposit for the glory of Christ. We've all been entrusted with the teaching of, of Jesus, of which we're to be not only hearers, but doers of his word, as, as we've seen numerous times over in Luke's gospel account receiving Jesus' word, bearing the fruit of extravagant love and servant-hearted obedience, the kindness of the Lord leading us to repentance. 
And of course, though perhaps a more implicit application, we've all been entrusted with a measure of time, talent, and resources with which to steward for the sake of the kingdom. Coming back to the, the parable, the nobleman leaves 10 of his servants with a mina each that they might steward that entrusted to them in faithfulness to the soon-to-be coronated king. Verse 14 tells us, But his citizens hated him, this nobleman, and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Again, the the story of Archelaus would have readily come to mind. Those 50 or so Jewish leaders who stood opposed to the coronation of Herod's son, along with the thousands of Jews living in Rome at the time. In Jesus' case, as we've seen throughout Luke's gospel account, the citizens of the parable representing the Jewish people, and more specifically, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, those who did not receive him, who stood opposed to his message and ministry. And we're told in verse 15, when he returned, the nobleman, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Here we have a reminder that that we will all someday stand before the master. No exceptions. The master who on that day will not only usher in the fullness of his reign as king, but will exercise the fullness of his perfect justice and wisdom as judge. As the apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In the case of the servants in Jesus' parable, We're told in verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Here we're told that that the first two servants come before the the once nobleman, now king, with news that their single mina has produced a significant return on investment, each with varying degrees of success, to be sure, and yet both returns requiring a measure of faithfulness. And yet, notice that neither man boasts, but rather credits his profit to what the king had given him. Neither says, I made you more than what you gave me to begin with, king. Both say, your mina has made more. That's what kingdom stewardship and faithfulness is. That's what the posture of a citizen and servant of King Jesus is like. Putting the gospel, a deposit of the gospel with which we've been entrusted to work, believing that the gospel is not the power of man, but the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. It's believing the word of God and living in, in light of that belief, knowing that it's by the spirit that we have any hope of putting the deeds of the flesh to death, Romans 8. It's putting the time, talent, and resources that we've been given to work, giving glory to the giver without whom we would have no initial deposit to begin with as we see the fruit of our kingdom labor. It's one more example of the silliness of arrogance and pride in the Christian community. It makes no sense. 
It makes no sense that the longer we're Christians, somehow we get more puffed up, many of us. These first two servants give an example of the kind of humility that the gospel is meant to produce. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. We sing it often. In the case of the the parable, the king not only responds with words of praise and affirmation, but two, providing each of these men with even more to steward in the ushering in of his kingdom. Here we get a picture of how Jesus will respond to those who are faithful in this life with both words of commendation and do we need more than well done, good and faithful servant. And yet we're told also the promise of greater reward in the age to come. As Jesus said back in chapter 12, who then is the faithful and wise Manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The blessing awaits those who faithfully steward what they've been entrusted with in this life for Jesus' sake. As he will entrust to them so much more in the life to come. In the case of the two faithful servants in this morning's parable, privileged to exercise authority over cities on the king's behalf. You get that picture of, of Adam and Eve as our first parents in the garden where, where God was the, the suzerain king and they were vassal kings, but they were operating in, in close proximity and intimacy with God in stewarding that which they had been given and entrusted to them for his glory. I mean, think about that. You're, you're exercising authority over cities on the king's behalf. I would imagine that there's surely closer companionship with and access to the king when you have that kind of role in the kingdom. And, and isn't that the greatest gift? Companionship with heaven's king. The gift of entering into the joy of our master. I'm reminded of John Piper quote from Years back, and I don't have it readily on me this morning, but the paraphrase is, if, if we want uh, the absence of sickness and pain and, and the, the being reunited with our loved ones and eternal golf and all the pleasures of heaven, if Christ weren't there, we will not be there. That the greatest gain of the gospel is God himself, which is not to, to diminish any of those other things. It's to say that that intimacy with the king himself and his eternal consummate kingdom is the greatest of all gifts. Here here Jesus describes a king so incredibly and lavishly generous and showering his faithful servants with rewards beyond their wildest imaginations. And yet, sadly, that's not how everyone sees the king. We're told in verse 20, then another, a third servant came saying, Lord, Here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. This third man comes before the king, declaring that he's failed to do anything with that with which the king had entrusted him, having hidden it away. No no loss on investment on the one hand, no return on investment On the other, motivated by fear, the servant was, believing the the once nobleman, now king, to be a severe man. 
wondering why even bother to try, knowing that any prophet wouldn't go in that man's pocket, but would be the king's in the end. The word translated severe coming from the Greek word uh, austeros, which is where we get our English word austere. It can also be translated grim or strict or exacting or rigid or harsh, which is everything the king in the parable is not. Again, so incredibly and lavishly generous in showering his faithful servants with rewards beyond their wildest dreams. It's everything that Jesus, whom the king in the parable represents, is not. As the Jesus we've come to know in Luke's gospel account, he's anything but grim or strict or exacting or rigid or harsh. Those are the religious leaders who are opposed to him for now 19 chapters. That's why many scholars believe that this is the servant's perception of the king, not an accurate depiction of who the king truly is. Meaning that the servant in the end didn't truly know the king. Depart from me, for I do not know you. It's the case with with many today within the Christian community who are busy in religious activity and don't have a saving relationship with King Jesus. Or more specifically, it's the case with many today who view God as a cruel taskmaster, a God who only ever demands and takes. Though this is a God who's not only kind in continuing to give us every moment by moment breath, Acts chapter 17, but who gave himself in the person of Jesus that lost sinners might know everlasting joy. Many of you know this verse well. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That when we look to the cross... We see not a cruel taskmaster, but a king who willingly gave up everything for undeserving sinners that he might make them citizens and saints. Even worse than a faulty perception of the the king coming back to the parable, this may even be a degrading of the king's character in the servant's attempt to make excuses for his own unfaithfulness. The king's response, verse 22 He said to the man, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Right here the king declares that the man's own words condemn him. If he truly believed the king to be a severe man, he would have at least put the the money with which he had been entrusted in the bank That with little to no effort at all on the servant's part. At least then he would have something to bring before such a grim, strict, harsh, rigid, exacting king. Verse 24, he said to those who stood by, the king did, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Human nature in response, right? Are you kidding me? How in the world is that fair? 
Why would someone who has an abundance receive even more at the expense of someone with so little losing that which he has? And the answer is found in verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. These words, verse 26, almost verbatim with what Jesus said right after the parable of the sower, going all the way back to chapter 8. There Jesus said, take care then how you hear for the one who has, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. In that case, the parable of the sower, it wasn't so much a statement about money and possessions, but rather what we do with the word that we've heard. To use that agrarian imagery of of the parable of the sower and the seed, the outworking of hearing, receiving, and obeying God's word is a a fruit-bearing harvest, whereas the outworking of ignoring, rejecting, and disobeying God's word is a dusty, barren field. And the same is true, not only of what we do with the word that we've heard, but to what we do with the gifting, resources, and opportunities God has given us. And ultimately, the deposit of the gospel with which we've all been entrusted, which we're meant to faithfully steward for for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. Jesus said back in chapter 16, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus presents the listener with a, with a sobering question. What are you doing right now with what you have? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Kingdom-minded contentment, stewardship, faithfulness, those things are born out of a functional trust in a sufficiently gracious and glorious King Jesus. It's seeing the king rightly. Coming back to the parable, scholars have have debated whether the the third servant was was saved or, or whether he found himself upon the king's return, cast out of the kingdom. And the truth is, we're not explicitly told. And we don't like that, if we're honest. We want to know how close to the line we can get, still be on the inside. On the one hand, the man is described as as wicked, verse 22. Perhaps a representation of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Sure that theirs was the kingdom of heaven, all the while standing on the outside looking in. A sobering warning for, for many within the church who don't truly have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. On the other hand, we're not told that the third servant was cast out as he's not explicitly included with the enemies of the king in verse 27, leaving the possibility that, that perhaps he suffered loss, the kind of loss that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3, that he survived the fire and everything else was burned up other than him. Either way, it's not where any of us should want to be when the king returns to usher in his kingdom in its full expression. What's undeniably clear is the way the parable ends. 
Verse 27, Jesus says, But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. When Jesus returns, not only will he generously shower his faithful servants with rewards beyond our wildest imaginations and dreams, but two, he will bring into account all who did not want him to reign over them. And I, I would go so far as to say, I believe that includes those who want Christ as Savior, but not Christ as King. That you truly can't divorce the two from one another. That just as faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin, so Jesus as Savior and Jesus as King are two sides of the same Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, those who are outside of Christ when he returns. As Jesus said back in chapter 17, and these are not verses that you build a big church with overnight, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, Jesus had said. That where spiritual death is present on the last day when he returns, God's judgment too will be present. That there is no third option. Luke's gone to painstaking lengths to make that clear to us over and over and over again. That the stakes are high. These red letter words carrying with them the weight of eternity. As the author of Hebrews says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Know. Know that the story of the Bible, it's the story of a, a king willing to die in the place of his own enemies, rescuing rebellious sinners into the joy of his eternal kingdom. Perhaps today is the day of salvation, the day to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him. The day to bend your knee in glad submission to a king who would become poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's where this story's going for the remainder of Luke. And for we who profess to, to know and follow Jesus, I would remind us that Jesus gave everything for us, demanding so small a return in response to his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Again, this parable, it's, it's more about faithfulness, verse 17, than giftedness. We've all been entrusted with the deposit of the gospel and we're called to steward that good deposit for the glory of Christ. We've all been entrusted with the teaching of, of Jesus of which we're to be not only hearers but doers, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We've all been entrusted with a measure of time, giftings, resources with which we're to steward for the sake of his kingdom. So that I would ask this morning, what are you doing with the gifting resources and opportunities God has given you? And ultimately, what are you doing with the deposit of the gospel with which you've been entrusted? Another way to say it, maybe a little more sobering way to ask the question in line with the imagery and language of this morning's parable, what profit will you have to bring before Jesus when he returns? He's not a cruel taskmaster. He's not grim. He's not strict. He's not exacting. He's not rigid. He's not harsh. 
He's a self-sacrificing king who willingly gave up everything for undeserving sinners that he might make them citizens of his eternally good kingdom. That's Jesus, a king so incredibly and lavishly generous that he promises to shower his faithful servants with rewards beyond their wildest imaginations. Ultimately, a forever joy and companionship with him, the greatest gift of entering into the joy of our master. And I don't know, maybe some of you will be over cities one day. And I hope to just be a, a citizen of the city you get to run. Actually, that's not true. I want to be over my own cities because I want close companionship to Jesus too. Let's aim high. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship Jesus. And, and, and that's a part of, of stewardship as well. You brought your time into this place this morning. Why? What's the purpose of it all? It's to worship the king, Right? Our song is just one of the many ways that we do that. You and I collectively, we get to steward the next 15 minutes of our lives singing songs to heaven's king together. We get to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are stations everywhere. You can't miss them, two up front. Gluten-free in the back there, communion cups in the back there. Move in whatever direction you, you will over these last uh, few songs. And we just encourage you to do that when you're prepared to do so because we want to give a little bit of space for the Holy Spirit to move and work during this time. In fact, we're going to give a couple minutes without any lyrics, with just instrumentation for, for each of us to sit with that question in the silence and solitude for just a moment to ask the question, Lord, what would you have me do with the gifting, the resources, the opportunities you've, you've given me? What would you have me do with the deposit of the gospel with which I've been entrusted? What would you have me do with the word which I've heard in terms of being a doer of that very word? What are you calling me to? It's an opportunity for confession and repentance. Before you take of the, the bread and the cup, again, I just encourage you to Maybe even open up your Bible for just a moment and, and to sit with 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich.